Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi could be a watershed moment for U.S. policy in the Middle East, with longtime ally Saudi Arabia finding itself in the global crosshairs for the dissident's death. In a part of the world rife with complex relationships and rivalries, this incident threatens even more unraveling in the region. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and the potential impact of this development across the Middle East is Stephen Cook. Any Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies with the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen has also authored some books, including False Dawn, Protest, Democracy and Violence in the New Middle East. Stephen, thank you for joining us on The Crisis Next Door. It's a great pleasure. In your latest foreign policy article titled The Saudis Are Killing America's Middle East Policy, you point out that there hasn't been a story that's gripped Washington's attention since Monica Lewinsky was dashing from a car to her lawyer's office in 1998. A very different story. What is it about Khashoggi's killing that has given that story a long shelf life during a time when big stories come and go by the day? Well, thanks. It's a, it's a great question. And it's actually been, for someone like myself who's been in Washington for more than a decade, it's really been quite extraordinary how the, how the Khashoggi murder really has gripped this city. And I think it's a, a function of, of three or four things. The first is Khashoggi was a, a columnist for the hometown newspaper, the Washington Post. Uh, it, this is a town where people make news, uh, people write about news, and people obsess about news 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, I think the second uh, issue at, at play here is the fact that um, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is so closely associated, not just with the Trump administration, but with President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner was the point man in the relationship between uh, the two countries. And although there have been quite a few prominent Republicans who have spoken out about the need to hold the Saudis account for the apparent murder of Jamal Khashoggi, there is a... a a partisan aspect to the uh, to to the outrage uh, over this uh, over this incident, and then I think that the larger question here is um, questions about the wisdom of the new leadership of Saudi Arabia. This was supposed to be a new Saudi Arabia uh, under the helm of a thirty-something crown prince who was a reformer who was trying to bring Saudi Arabia into the twenty-first century. Uh, much ballyhooed reforms uh, that chipped away at the gender apartheid in Saudi Arabia, the approval of movie theaters, the coming back to the kingdom after almost 40 years, uh, concerts, uh, a variety of other things, reigning in the religious place. And all those things are positive, but they came with a lot of really negative things that the crown prince has done. Um, the Jamal Khashoggi murder is is, is just the, the most recent in a string of miscalculations and, and outright mistakes on the part of, uh, of the young crown prince. And there has been a real debate in Washington about the wisdom of relying so, uh, so much on an untested leader. 
the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been allies for decades. Do you think that this relationship is about to fall apart? And, and if that did happen, what would that mean for U.S. interests in the Middle East? I think it's unlikely that uh, the United States is going to walk away from its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, a single individual has never disrupted uh, the relationship. Uh, of course, there's a lot of outrage over Jamal Khashoggi, but I think it, it is this incident provides an opportunity for American policymakers to have a larger conversation about our relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's clear that the Trump administration wants to move beyond this issue, uh, wants to focus on the larger goal, which is containing rolling and rolling back Iranian influence throughout the region. But I think Congress, um, very much, and I think it's a bipartisan effort, believes that the Saudis have been largely counterproductive. They have not been assets in an effort to uh, to uh, counter the influence of the Iranians in the region, but by their own ill-considered moves and military calculations, they've actually helped the Saudis. Um, so I think that there's a, a, a great desire to think about this relationship, to perhaps restructure the relationship, uh, to uh, send Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, the message that if you want to be a strategic ally of the United States, essentially you have to act like an adult. But as you mentioned, the White House and Riyadh shared an animosity for Iran, with Saudi Arabia vying with Iran for regional power. Is Saudi Arabia at all critical to U.S. strategy in containing Iran? Well, it's critical if only because it really is the last great Arab power standing. Um, there have been two pillars of uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East uh, over the course of the last 35 or 40 years, and that's Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Egypt, a country that has lurched from crisis to crisis to crisis since uh, Hosni Mubarak's unexpected fall in 2012. He had led Egypt for 30 years and been a critical ally of the United States. This is a country that is, is really too busy with itself, focused inward on, on, on reform and change, um, as opposed to Saudi Arabia, which had, did not experience this kind of instability. Uh, other Arab heavyweights like Iraq uh, is clearly out of the game. Syria out of the game. So really, you have uh, you have Saudi Arabia as the last uh, power standing, and that's one of the reasons why the United States has has uh, focused so much attention on working with Saudi Arabia, not just to uh, counter Iranian influence around the region, but also to uh, fight the Islamic State. Um, as I said, particularly when it comes to Iran. Um, by Saudi's own, quite frankly, dumb moves, they have um, they've done quite the opposite. They've uh, helped uh, they've helped the Iranians in in a variety of unintended ways and places. I would imagine that you're thinking about Yemen in that case, where the Saudis have been fighting the Houthi rebels and Iran has been supporting the Houthis. And that really has not gone well at all for Saudi Arabia. It, all, it almost looks like that's their Afghanistan at this moment. It certainly is a quagmire for the Saudis. They went into Yemen um, declaring that they could not tolerate the what they call the Hezbollahization of Yemen. Hezbollah being, of course, this uh, extremist terrorist organization uh, in Lebanon that has created basically a state within a state in, in Lebanon and has been a cause of major problems, uh, not just for Israel, but has been part of the ground forces fighting on behalf of uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Uh, and they've uh, went in there all into Yemen also to uh, counter what they perceive to be Iranian influence there. 
Uh, and they've only deepened both of those things. It, actually, everything that they sought to prevent has um, has has come true in 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 Yemen. And the Saudis are essentially caught in a war that is unwinnable. Um, the Houthi army uh, really just needs to hang on and fight the Saudis to essentially a standstill to win this conflict. And um, that's precisely what they've been doing. This gets to the sectarian issue with the Saudis being Sudis and the Iranian Shiites and Iran forming the so-called Shiite crescent crossing from Iran through Iraq, Syria into Lebanon. Is this an existential crisis for Saudi Arabia, fearing that the Shiites will surround the kingdom and have greater control over the region? Well, I think we should be careful about couching so many of the conflicts in the region as sectarian ones. Um, it is certainly true that both Saudi and Iranian leaders uh, frame their great power competition uh, in uh, sectarian terms, and more so, I should say, the Saudis than the Iranians. Um, but really what the, what the Saudis are worried about, and as I said, they frame it in terms of Sunni and Shia, but they are worried about Iranian uh, power projection around the region. They're worried about Iranian influence around the region. And I think quite rightly so. The Iranians are a revolutionary power. They do not like uh, the American-slash-Saudi status quo and the rules of the game in the region, and they'd like to change it, that uh, accrue to the benefit of, of Iran. Um, and there certainly is a sectarian aspect to it. Like I said, uh, the Saudis see it in this way, but really what uh, we're talking about are... The, is, is the power relationship between two regional powers and who gets to essentially call the shots in the region. Um, the Saudis don't want it to be the Iranians. The Iranians uh, uh, have for a long time uh, felt that uh, they're a great power in the region and that they should, uh, they should be able to establish the rules of the road. Um, and a way to mobilize their populations they have, uh, as I said before, framed the issue in terms of sectarian differences uh, between the countries. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the Saudi-U.S. relationship with Stephen Cook, Annie Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies with the Council on Foreign Relations. Oil, of course, is a huge issue here. The Carter Doctrine was put into place in the 70s to protect energy supplies. That was reinforced during the first Gulf War when the U.S. protected the Saudis from Saddam Hussein's armies. Is that still applicable? Uh, could the Saudis use oil as a bargaining chip to prevent possible sh- sanctions over Khashoggi? Uh, I think it's unlikely that the Saudis would do that. Um, it, 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 if only because they share Washington's goal in countering the Iranian influence around the region. And we're coming up on November 5th, which is a day in which there are going to be new sanctions on Iran. And the United States has been working very, very hard to uh, prevent countries from buying Iranian oil. So there will still be Iranian oil out there, but the Trump administration hopes there will be less and less buyers for it. In order to make up for what is essentially being taken off the, the, the market and to prevent any kind of price shock, um, the United States would like the Saudis to pump more oil um, and moderate uh, and moderate prices. And the Saudis are likely likely to comply with that. They've already signaled that they'll put anywhere from 700,000 to a million more barrels on the market every day in order to prevent 
um, uh, the United States and other countries from experiencing the kind of price shock that they experienced in the, that we experienced in the 1970s. I think that overall we have to make a clear difference between Saudi Arabia, the country, and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And I think that the security commitments that the United States has made to Saudi Arabia will remain intact. Um, and I think that though when it comes to the crown prince, the United States may seek a change in the relationship, if not his position in Saudi Arabia, but, but one in which uh, the United States deals more directly with King Salman, who uh, has really run the country more as executive chairman rather than uh, in the day-to-day management of Saudi affairs. King Salman chose his son, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, over his nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, to become the future king of Saudi Arabia. Do you think in any way that King Salman would possibly sacrifice his son in order to preserve relations with the United States? I I think it's a drastic step, Um, and it's widely known that Mohammed bin Salman is... um, the king's favorite son. It's his seventh son of many. Um, his favorite son and um, has been grooming him for a long time. It wasn't always clear that Salman would become the king, but certainly grooming him for great things in in in, in the Saudi royal family. Um, it only seems to me that the king would take that drastic step if he cho- if he knew two things. One, that it was the bottom line for the United States if the Trump administration said to King Salman, the, the young man has to go uh, before we can carry on with our relationship. And simultaneously, the king would also have to know that replacing Mohammed bin Salman would not throw the royal family into chaos uh, at the same time. I think both of those things, I think the, the president of the United States uh, laying down the law that way is is very unlikely at this point. And I think that um, the king and the other royals, quite honestly, uh, no matter how angry they may be at Mohammed bin Salman, understand that that kind of drastic step uh, may destabilize uh, Saudi Arabia in ways that all of them lose. So I, I think um, there has been uh, a certain amount of speculation uh, in the West about Mohammed bin Salman's future. Um, I think some of it is is it, it doesn't track with reality. More likely, uh, the crown prince's uh, sales will be trimmed somewhat. He he won't be as visible. You'll see a more conciliatory tone from him. As I suggested, the king may be more uh, more present and more high profile in the management uh, of the country. But ultimately, um, I, I I think the logical conclusion of this is that Mohammed bin Salman will remain as the crown prince and will one day be the king of Saudi Arabia. We've seen a massive purge of political rivals in Saudi Arabia with the so-called corruption purge in 2017 that resulted in the jailing of more than 50 royal family members and businessmen. Uh, do you think the foundation of the House of Saud is solid enough indeed for Mohammed bin Salman to become the king? Could a cabal possibly be formed to overthrow the king and the crown prince? Well, of course, you know, there are lots of things that have happened in the Arab world over the course of the last seven or eight years that weren't supposed to happen. So I I would say, you know, to kind of be sneaky about this, anything is possible. But in reality, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has uh, worked very hard to consolidate his personal power. Um, In that, he has created uh, certainly enemies and adversaries within his own own family, among non-royal elites uh, and, 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 and others. Um, but he 
in the process of consolidating this power, he has wrested control of the military, of the intelligence services, of the Saudi Arabian National Guard, which is essentially the Praetorian Guard of the of the royal family, from other branches of the royal family, so that they're all now in, in his hands. Now, one can certainly imagine that there are unhappy people within those forces, but uh, Mohammed bin Salman has thus far been successful in placing his own people in sensitive positions in, in all of those places, making the possibility of a, of a, of a palace coup uh, less and less likely. Well, the Crown Prince did sack General Ahmed al-Assiri, a trusted lieutenant who is the deputy head of Saudi intelligence uh, over the Khashoggi case. Uh, is this a case where al-Assiri will be taken care of while taking the fall, or does he face a starker future? And how do you think that will be taken by the rest of bin Salman's inner circle? Well, this is really the this is a, a big issue. Uh, a number of people within uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman's inner circle have now been pinned with the crime of killing Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, what does that say to people who have been unfailingly loyal to the crown prince? Uh, what will those who remain within the inner circle, or those who enter the inner circle, how will they? Uh, how will they approach uh, the crown prince? I think, um, given how hard it is to see what happens behind closed doors within the royal court and the royal family, I think it's very, very hard to to see what happens. Although I suspect that um, people like General Assiri, um, who was an architect of the Yemen campaign, uh, might not fare as well as other people like Suud al Qahtani and 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 others. The Middle East has been dealing with destabilizing events for a long time, especially over the past several years since the onset of the Arab Spring. Does this Khashoggi case take all of this to a new level? What, what does this do for the entire region, or will it get past this in due time? Well, it is important, and it does have an impact on the region because Saudi Arabia has been, one, the last major Arab state um, still standing, Two had with that place that it has been with, with this kind of as the last country standing, um, it has taken on a, a larger and more active foreign policy role. Um, missteps like the invasion of Yemen, like the like the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, um, weakens Saudi Arabia and raises the prospects of uh, of a region that continues to be. Uh, unstable uh, and 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 a problem from the perspective of uh, American foreign policy. President Trump, like President Obama before him, have wanted to leave the Middle East, uh, a pursuit of policy of retrenchment. But you can't possibly leave the region when the country that you're relying upon as your as as an asset, as someone who shares your interests as a country that will be uh, a partner, is uh, greatly weakened and uh, potentially unstable. Never a dull moment in the Middle East. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my great pleasure. We've been joined by Stephen Cook, any Enrico Mattei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies with the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.